A note of caution for our listeners. This episode contains references to young women and various traumas they experienced. The optics of the meetings in Southwest Detroit in the 1980s almost sounded like a bar joke. A social worker, a plumber, a cop, an Episcopal pastor, a priest, some religious sisters, and other neighborhood residents all coming together regularly to share concerns about their neighborhood. But the unlikely collaboration of these unique minds came out of a shared concern about some of the most vulnerable members of their community. What was going on with girls in our neighborhood? This is Amy Good, a resident of the neighborhood, Our Lady of Sorrows alumna, and a social worker who had been in the field for seven years at that point, working with families impacted by child abuse and neglect. Just a number of different residents of the neighborhood had this growing conversation about Hmm, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Uh, and, and you know how when something's brought to your attention, you see it more than you did before, even though it's been there all along. So what we were noticing was some very disturbing trends. Um, one thing is that there was, a, uh, there was a, a dramatic increase in gang activity in Southwest Detroit in, during that time. Uh, and something that was new and particularly alarming uh, was that girls were being uh, engaged with gangs, not in the same way that boys and young men were, but girls and young women were being involved in gangs in very horribly exploitive and oppressive ways. And the neighbors wanted to do something, so they did. At a time when resources and organizations exclusively for girls were scant, they were filling a large gap with an organization, Alternatives for Girls. Since its founding 36 years ago, it's offered roughly 36,000 girls positive alternatives in every sense of the word. Angelique, a formerly homeless teen who has gone through their program, sums it up. I wouldn't have been able to find this much help elsewhere. Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Deciding whether or not to lay your loved one's cremated remains to rest can be challenging. Maybe you're thinking, it's best to keep my loved one near me for now. Our Catholic faith teaches that cremated remains should be buried in sacred and consecrated ground. And the Archdiocese of Detroit has a beautiful program to help you called Gather Them Home. It provides a Catholic burial for your loved one's cremated remains at one of six Archdiocese of Detroit cemeteries at no cost to you. For more information about the free Gather Them Home program, please visit gatherthemhome.com or call 734-285-2155. It all started with some observations. We were seeing a real increase in the number of girls and young women who were engaged in sex work and victims and survivors of sex trafficking in Southwest Detroit in particular, um, on Trumbull, on Cass, on Fort Street, uh, on Grand River, and some other streets in, in the area. This is Amy Good, a social worker and CEO of Alternatives for Girls speaking about the growing concern of neighbors in her southwest Detroit neighborhood. And there were just no services, no supports for them. In fact, they, you know, those that the, some of us chatted with 
talked about tremendous stigmas that they faced even when they sought medical care. At the time, the number of minors in sex work and sex trafficking was rising at an alarming rate. There was another painfully obvious issue. We're seeing um, girls and young women who are experiencing homelessness. And I'm talking, I'm talking teenagers and young women, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old young women. That's what we were seeing. Now, this is an oversimplification, but they, will, they were too old to fit well into the foster care system and too young to fit well in the adult shelter system. So the most arguably, the most vulnerable component of our homeless population had no place to go. And that was very alarming. I mean, we were, we were literally seeing girls, teenage girls, sleeping in cardboard boxes in the park along Trumbull, north of Fort Street. And that sort of issue could be really hard for the adults to keep tabs on because of the final issue they noticed. Southwest Detroit at that time had the highest rate of school dropout in the whole city. And we were seeing young girls, fourth graders. I remember specifically some fourth, fifth graders who were just staying home from school to take care of younger siblings. They weren't getting into trouble. They weren't bothering anybody. They were playing outside, but they were not in school. And the schools just lacked the capacity to follow up with families when children stopped coming to school. These issues, increased gain and drug activity, homelessness, school dropout rates, were no secret in Detroit in the 1980s. But what was surprising was the void of service providers in Detroit and the nation, specifically for girls and young women. In a city overwhelmed with crime and blight, they didn't have anywhere to go. That wasn't by design, but that was the reality. In general, boys and young men who are out there needing to survive on their own tend to be engaged in or perceived to be engaged in activities that are more threatening to others. And therefore, there's more attention that in response to them being out there on their own needing to do what they have to do to survive. Whereas girls and young women who are out there needing to find a way to survive tend to engage in activities that are more harmful to themselves and where they become almost invisible to the, you know, to the same, uh, the same entities that are out there responding to boys and young men. One of the things that was going on is that girls tended to stay home to take care of younger children. Also, girls were less likely to be allowed to venture out to cross some of the main streets. And the more it was mostly boys, the more it was mostly boys. <laughs> Amy and her neighbors made their informal porch conversations more formal, moving them to meeting rooms in St. Peter's Episcopal Church and Most Holy Trinity Catholic Church. There was no blueprint for what they were trying to do. Surveying the nation for street-based outreach models of service that focused on girls, Amy kept coming up empty. It seemed that the invisibility of girls on the margins was a national trend. So the group would have to conceive of something entirely new. To do so, they cobbled together enough money to hire two part-time social workers who organized groups of volunteers to embark on a solution-seeking mission, surveying and having conversations with people all over Detroit. 
all kinds of stakeholders in the neighborhood. Um, residents, of course, um, block club leaders, business owners, school personnel, teachers, um, uh, medical people, um, other service providers, political people, police. In June of 1987, results of the neighborhood research were brought to a community forum. What was concluded was, uh, uh, first of all, there had to be shelter for this vulnerable component of our homeless population. Um, girls and young women, too old for the foster care system, too young for the adult shelter system. Number two, there really needed to be a response, a compassionate response to those who were victims and survivors of sex trafficking and otherwise engaged in sex work. And three, there had to be some robust supports to help girls and help families help girls stay in school, keep up in school, graduate from high school. So those were three priorities that were identified. We were off and running. They took the name Alternatives for Girls and prepared to offer positive alternatives in Southwest Detroit to girls facing these three issues, homelessness, sex work, and difficulty in school. But the group hit some walls. We were looking for a service provider or a number of them to step up to the plate and address these issues. Uh, we thought it might take us as much as a year to identify several people to come together and do that. But there were no takers. There was no steady stream of funding for these services. That's why they were gaps in the first place. Fall came and still no windfalls. The group started looking for financing, applying for grants, including one from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. They were turned down the following month. But by then, the group felt the ball was in motion. They couldn't stop. You know, we just decided when we got rejected from that grant in December of 1987, there is no turning back. We, we can't turn our backs on this most vulnerable component of our homeless population and the others who were at risk, even if they weren't homeless. We set a goal, we're going to open a shelter by April. And we just looked for money and looked for money and looked for money. Amy, who thought she had enough money saved to manage one year without employment, quit her job to devote her energy to this full time. Donations came in from neighbors, parishioners of St. Peter's and Most Holy Trinity, and other community players, but they were still falling short of the amount they would need to open even the barest of shelters. Uh, one super, super cold day in January. Now we would call it a polar vortex kind of day. I don't think we used that term then. A 16-year-old girl came to the door of the church she had no place to go. I spent a couple of hours with her. We just couldn't, no family members that were safe and available, no um, faith community that was she was connected with, nobody. And, and the foster care system, she was, she was too close to 18 for them to open a case for her. And we just looked at each other and said, I, I, we're opening without money. Uh, a, a, you know, a little different kind of business plan. Namely, not a business plan at all, but a giant leap of faith. The girl went home with a parishioner for a weekend while Amy spent the weekend calling all the people who had been a part of the conversation over the years. Okay, so that weekend, when we decided we're opening, and this girl went home with a parishioner for the weekend, we just called in all, all of the friends and people that had been involved, and I just said, sign up for a shift, come on down, bring the family, 
you know, take Tuesday evening. Uh, if you can't come, send money. And in particular, there was a sister church, Christ Church in Grosse Point. And uh, there, you know, the story is that their men's group came over on that Saturday and they pulled cots out of the basement and they set up the cots and they helped set up the bedrooms and we went out and bought bedding um, with some donations that we had and that's what we did. And uh, this girl came back Sunday, we opened the shelter with five beds and we were off and running. By the end of the week, all the beds were full in a makeshift shelter in the basement of St. Peter's Episcopal Church. Um, and we just opened and, uh, you know, and the pastor, Father John and I, just took turns spending the night and filling in the gaps where the volunteers weren't covering and it was crazy. Every day we would go to open the mail and go buy groceries. <laughs> and you know, we didn't know if we would be there the following week, but we opened and we stayed open. And you know, we just figured every day, every night that we were open was good, a good thing. Even if we weren't still around, you know, a few weeks later. Everything was pieced together through shoestring budgets, last minute donations, and big hearted volunteers. There were times it felt as if they were holding their breaths, waiting for everything to fall apart. But it never did. One day in April, I will never forget that day, um, I, I got a call from HUD and a program that they had funded in that round of funding in Houston, Texas, was closing down, returning their grant, and we were getting $376,000 as of July 1st. With the grant, AFG was able to hire staff to work at the shelter. They expanded to 12 beds, and they could finally take steps to start their street outreach program, a service that would reach out to girls and young women who were at risk. They hired a female retired Detroit police officer who had worked with women in prostitution to lead the program. She recruited a staff of volunteers. They purchased a van that was specially outfitted with a cell phone for safety, a high-tech piece of equipment for the time. On a snowy Christmas Eve, their outreach program had its first shift. And we drove around the streets and connected with girls and women who were out there um, involved in street-based sex work and passed out homemade Christmas cookies uh, and other things that they needed. And we were off and running. Um, we're very respectful. We don't shove things down people's throats. We are the only compassionate presence on the street uh, that is out there it's specifically to serve this population. We um, make contact. We let them know of our services. We provide crisis intervention and emergency services on the street. We give them food. We give them hygiene kits. We give them, of course, warm clothing in the winter, um, water, uh, you know, warm, hot drinks in the winter. We offer them services right on the site. I mean, sometimes, you know, we'll have to get somebody to an emergency room, for example. Um, um, we let them know about what is available to them, but we don't pressure them. And, you know, we're very careful to be clear that, you know, our message is not if you stop participating in this, then we will serve you. That is not our message. Our message is we are here for you. You are, you are worthwhile. We care about you, period. Um, and we will see you again, you know, in two days. We'll look for you. Um, we let them know about what's going on on site, and they can, if they are interested, they can 
come to the agency to participate in all kinds of services. Casework, individual casework services, family support, group services of all kinds. We have a number, a range of different kinds of support group services. They can work their way through the program and become leaders. Again, like I said with peer educators, they can join our staff and become paid members of our staff. While launching their street outreach ministry, they also work to develop their peer prevention program. They hired a former kindergarten teacher of 30 years from the neighborhood to go door to door and speak with parents, many of whom were her former students, inviting them to enroll their daughters in a girls club prevention program. So our prevention program serves girls and their families, girls from kindergarten through high school. Um, and we do many, many things to help them stay in school, thrive in school, graduate from high school and go, and go on to college or some other post high school education or training program. So we do after school, all kinds of after school programming, uh, you know, academic based and also um, other programs and support services that just help them with their self esteem, help them be, you know, build their resilience. Um, help them just identify their values and, um, and, and, you know, be in a position to act in accordance with their values um, so that they, you know, understand how to avoid exploitation of all kinds. So we do, we do after school, all kinds of after school programs, you know, recreational, academic, um, self-esteem building, resilience building, a whole range of things. Um, we have a summer program that uh, operates four days a week uh, and serves that same population, uh, challenges them in all kinds of ways, and we sneak lots of, lots of academics in there. And then one th other thing I'll mention about what that program looks like that's very exciting um, is what we call an asset building program. So we help them open a college savings account when they're in middle school. We make an initial deposit they make deposits, we match their deposits. We only have $500 per girl. We'd like someday to have more. And it's not so, and, and, and they stay in the program throughout middle school and high school. We engage their parents, we do all kinds of things. We have volunteer tutors and mentors, and we help them develop a college bound identity. So it's more the planning and the early identification with being college bound even than it is the dollars in their account. But they do, they graduate and they go to college. As more funding sources were found, they launched what would become a blueprint replicated in places all around the country. The peer education program would recruit teenage girls who are involved in some high risk activity, whether sex work, drinking, dealing or using drugs, violent relationships, delinquency, etc., and educate them. We educate them in a very rigorous curriculum educating them about a whole range of things, um, you know, including primarily how to identify risks and how to minimize and protect oneself from risks. And then we pay them. We hire them on our staff and we pay them to educate their peers. They do street-based outreach. They, do, they go, go to places like Vista Maria and juvenile justice facilities in schools and they talk to their peers as well as on the street. Uh, about identifying risks, you know, how to avoid gangs, how to avoid violence, how to get out of gangs, 
um, recognizing drugs, um, all about sex trafficking and how to protect oneself and one's friends. In the last 36 years, Alternatives for Girls has not only survived their original hope in the early days, but has thrived, continuing to grow into a behemoth nonprofit approaching the plight of young women from several vantage points. To this day, theirs is the only runaway shelter in the city. In the last year, they've added a daycare center on site for babies of women living in the shelter. And in the meantime, their work continues to grow. They work with police agencies, participating in stains, breaking up sex work rings, and connect them to services for substance abuse, recovery, intervention, shelter, whatever is needed. They've all been exposed to an experienced trauma, um, and we're very serious about our trauma-informed services throughout the organization. There's also their Workforce Development Coordination Hub. So we um, help connect girls and young women to training, apprenticeships, internships, employers who will train them. Um, we make warm referrals um, on an individual basis. And we have employers who work with us, and we need more. Um, who, we have some employers who work with us and they hire our participants. They know that even though they're very entry level, they may not have had a paying job ever. They may have dropped out of school. They may struggle with literacy, um, but we are there for them. And when they encounter daycare problems, transportation problems, health problems, other trauma related problems, we are there to help them be successful with employment. And we, you know we're a resource to the employee and to the employer. So it's a good, it's a win-win-win. And then there's the housing stability program. We have uh, a, a program to subsidize rent based on somebody's income and provide intense support services for those who have graduated from our shelter and are ready to live independently. Um, and so that's what we call our housing stability program. Um, we served uh, 133 young people, and that program serves young men as well as young women. We served 133 young people plus 52 of their children in that program. And then? And the other thing that's so exciting is that we are partnering with a nonprofit developer right now to build a 45-unit affordable housing development in northwest Detroit, um, right across the street from Christ the King Parish. Uh, we expect it to open in, in um, May or June next year, and um, something that is really unique with regard to an affordable housing project like this is that it, we, we are um, going to be creating a daycare center on site um, to serve the children who live there uh, as well as members of the community. And like our daycare on site, it will serve children from zero to three. That is the greatest need and the greatest area of the shortage of daycare slots in our community. So that's really exciting. The housing development will also have a daycare center on site to serve the parents that live there, as well as members of the community, serving children from birth to age three. Most recently, a grant from the Catholic Foundation of Michigan that helped create a position, sorely needed position in our shelter to, to focus on the infants and uh, young babies and young children of our shelter residents, as well as supporting those who are pregnant. 
you know, we've of course we've always provided support to them, but we have a we have a dedicated position to educate and support those who are pregnant and parenting. Um, just to help, just to make sure they get all of the attention and individual and well-informed support that they need to, to be successful and healthy throughout pregnancy, childbirth, and the early years of parenting. So that's been really important. Last year, 3,400 girls and young women were served through AFG's many programs. 94 women lived in their shelters, 35 of their children. Since its founding? We estimate that uh, that overall we've served, if you're talking about an unduplicated number, certainly conservatively over a thousand a year. So uh, over 36,000 over our 36 years. But there are other numbers too, ones that boast of AFG's groundbreaking impact on the young women and girls of Detroit. 78% of our shelter residents last year moved into positive, stable living positions and stayed there for at least the six months that we were able to track them. Um, uh, about 75% of them were employed in school or both. So those are some really important measures of success. In our prevention program, 90, over the years, almost 100%, I have to say 98% because it's not quite 100%, but 98% and you most years 100% of our participants uh, who are at the age of graduating from my school graduate from my school. And about 83% go on to college. In our, our housing stability program, our rent subsidy program, where we continue to provide supports to them, all of them last year, 100% of them remained safely housed three months after we closed their case. Um, and in outreach, of course, it's difficult, really difficult to measure success in our outreach program, but we do. Um, you know, we measure, we have to measure baby steps. Um, but um, of those that we served on a, on a, um, on a uh, intensive or ongoing basis, 86% of them maintained employment legal safe employment after six months. So those are some of the things that we measure. Some more numbers for you. 36 years after its founding, there are 103 employees of AFG and over 100 volunteers driving around the city, mentoring, staying up sleepless nights, knocking on doors. And today, there is one really big alternative for girls in Detroit looking for some hope. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Deciding whether or not to lay your loved one's cremated remains to rest can be challenging. Maybe you're thinking, it's best to keep my loved one near me for now. Our Catholic faith teaches that cremated remains should be buried in sacred and consecrated ground and the Archdiocese of Detroit has a beautiful program to help you called Gather Them Home. It provides a Catholic burial for your loved one's cremated remains at one of six Archdiocese of Detroit cemeteries at no cost to you. For more information about the free Gather Them Home program, please visit gatherthemhome.com 
or call 734-285-2155.